0: Well good morning I thought i 'd uh, do a couple of little shorts uh, today, <laughs> not my usual long form. Uh, just got in from the walk this morning thought i 'd share um, some of my own practices so somatic experiencing is what i 'll call this short short um, it 's interesting because uh, just in in the time that i 've been studying trauma anxiety uh, emotional regulation, critical thinking, whatever you want to call it, mindfulness meditation. Uh, during my time, uh, there was this practitioner who came up with uh, a practice that he uh, called somatic experiencing. Now, off the top of my head, again, this is not scripted, so I can't remember the exact issue, but he, he fell out of favor for some reason. right? Either he was personally unlikable or... I don't know what the silly issue was, um, but his take was loony, I, I think is what it was, um, Like kind of like a, a chiropractor in a sense. Right? You can have a chiropractor who uh, is a health professional sometimes, who will help somebody with, uh, you know, uh, pulled muscles, strained back, what have you, but you can have a chiropractor who believes, that you can cure any illness with spinal adjustment well that's a little bit off the rocker so I think he may have been um, you know in that camp but don't quote me on that uh, but that's where the problem lies so ten years after he was a problem they seem to be talking about somatic experiencing again it's weird too because they really didn't talk about it even though it's an actual thing but fast forward to today so what I've stolen from the research uh, is, I think, uh, elaborating on the research. So the original research for uh, helping people be more grounded, uh, more somatic experience, uh, so someone who's traumatized or um, distracted, you name it, for all the reasons, disassociated, um, the many different reasons why someone might not be connected to their physical experience. Uh, So bringing them to that physical experience is the first step to emotional regulation, right? So this process of grounding you. So the study, there's a couple of different um, protocols or practices or attempts to use um, somatic experiencing to treat uh, anxiety, depression, trauma, whatever you want to call it, be able to get in touch, right? Because it's important. They've shown that even five minutes of, of concerted, right? Devoted meditation—not just sitting there waiting for the five minutes to pass, but truly trying to center oneself, calm. What have you, calm introspection? If you get advanced enough, so they've seen that it works. It helps reduce overall uh, inflammation. The markers in the blood, even. Right? So what they studied uh, is—you've probably heard of this—the uh, the, the eye movement uh, therapy. the theory is, since trauma is not the experience itself, it's how you internalize it, how you uh, personalize it, how you perceive it, and how you carry it forward, right? So, trauma is how you internalize this experience, essentially reliving a memory from the past as if it were, were happening right now. So, the eye movement Changes your experiences of remembering your trauma, it changes it to, um, well, it it changes it back to essentially being uh, what it should be just the memory. Right? Because what they discovered is people go into these weird little trauma-freeze moments where if they're reliving this experience, they freeze. So they're disconnected even more so from their, they're even more disconnected from their their physical presence. So using the, the eye movement allows you to consciously as well as physically and I guess subconsciously remind yourself that no, you're in the present right now. That, what you're experiencing is emotions which you know arguably aren't real uh, but more importantly you're experiencing a trauma from the past as if it were happening now but it's not. It's not happening now. So that was studied and it looks like it worked really well. That's the one that Basil van der Kortz, the traumatologist as they tend to call themselves now. Um, that's the protocol that he supports. right? So he'll be in therapy and he'll He'll ask you what are you feeling right now? And he's watch my fingers and your eyes move. So you're grounded as you're experiencing these emotions, and it can it can take away the intensity. Um and by taking away some of the intensity intensity, it could keep you more grounded, you become less emotionally dysregulated, less distance from your somatic experience, and, and, and Works. It works, it's a it's a great idea. I use myself, say I'm on a walk and I start to experience something uh, rough, is I'll make sure to look around and you know, get that eye movement in as well as you know, looking at nature and know what's around me. There's your Satipatthana again, so concentrate on your, your breathing. But for me, what I've, I've played into is um, it's based on the fidget spinner and another trauma protocol that they did test. So what they did is they gave people these buzzers, one for each hand. And what they found is the buzzers uh, help uh, bring you back into your somatic experience grounding. So what I've gotten done is I wear uh, at least two rings. Right? I'm married, so I have a wedding ring. I have um, I have a skin disease, uh, so you know. Wearing a ring was hit and miss for a while, but now that I'm starting to be able to manage my inflammation and my stress, all this stuff, it's helped. This is why skin disease is, is usually a, an early warning sign of immune or auto-inflammatory disease, which is what I have. My skin just shows it, that it's an auto-inflammatory disease. Um, so, I started wearing the rings again, right, as a somatic tool. So, I wore a ring on each hand, because, being reminded of them being there, in fact, uh, I was discussing this with a friend, and he remembered himself that he used to use his wedding ring as a somatic uh, grounding tool. So, I mentioned the, the, the ring on each hand, because instead of it being specifically, say, left or right, this actually engages the left and right hemispheres of the brain by engaging the left and right uh, sides of of the body. So that is your somatic experiencing. It's mala. Uh, When you count your mala beads in your hand, it's somatic, it's mantra practice, it's mudra if you think about it because you're moving your hands in a very specific way. You're being conscious because you don't go past the guru bead, right? You reverse your direction. That's just another attempt at being more mindful and in present. so you don't become mindless in the practice. Again, this is an attempt to deepen the mindful practice. practice. So for me, that's uh, the somatic experience. For decades, I wore a mala around my neck because it, it reminded me regularly. Of my vows, right? For me, uh, I was able to wear wood. Didn't give me a lot much trouble. It seems stone is similar, right? Without any issues, skin issues, right? Because I have one mala I've mentioned it before uh, that I got from the Tibetan uh, nuns project about thirty some years ago. Still, still, uh, still, uh, still in its original string wonderful little thing. Uh, sandalwood, maybe going back to before uh, before it became so hard to get your hands on. But at the same time, I also uh, purchased uh, two other mama. I got uh, one made from bone, since I'm wasting it. And plus, it uh, tends to be pretty pretty tough, long-lasting. Uh, that one actually unstrung itself. That's so why I don't use that one. I actually got one uh, lotus uh, seeds, those little um, uh, kind of like a tan to a gray or a whitish, creamish colored uh, seed with little uh, dots on it. Uh, they're really cool because uh, if you wear it long enough, like I wore mine for 10, 20 years, it starts to really darken um, from... Being in contact with your skin, that one as well opened up. A couple of them actually cracked, even it became so old. Um, I don't believe most Buddhists end up keeping them all that long. They didn't have much of a choice being here in Canada. Most of the malas I've acquired since I got at a thrift store, I believe, it or not. I got two, uh, two sets of um, tulsi, holy basil, um, mala, and I don't think people realize what it was because they were brand spanking new. Uh, before that, uh, I was using, uh, as well, another Tulsi beat mala. That one broke as well, one of the beats uh, broke. And all that is, it's just, the teaching is that it served its purpose, Tanuvama, and that sort of stuff. which is kind of cool. It actually opened me up to, to some other practices, not strictly mala, like maybe even the ring, having gone through some of my mala, instead of that being my sole and only practice, uh, I mean somatic, practice. Um, it, it evolved into the ring idea. right? So I highly impeach anyone who's looking uh, to bring this practice into everyday life. right? Because that is what mindfulness is. It's not to sit on a cushion. It's not to uh, step away from the world uh, exclusively uh, to do these practices. Uh, it's meant for you to get so good at them that you could carry them forward into everyday life. Um, so I argue these little respites of, of mindful moments uh, can happen anytime, anywhere, and so I recommend uh, you know, doing something like this, I mean bracelets I mentioned before, um, I wear a watch it's just an old naff, I don't even know where it came from originally but I like to wear a mechanical watch, it's not a battery-powered watch right? so really the watch is just uh, keeping track of itself on the other uh, wrist, uh, just for, you know, I said, a balancing, a somatic experiencing, I actually wear a red and, and a yellow string. It's based off of a, a practice, a devotional practice. Uh, the wife and I do it. Uh, we both wear them. Um, uh, we replace them regularly. It's, it's a vow of devotion both to each other and our practice in the future and all this jazz. Um, again, it's another a mindful object that you could use uh, to, you know, to bring your focus to bear, as they might say. So for me, like so many others, I, I uh, fall for the imposter syndrome, but as every day goes by, I'm starting to realize that I only feel that way because it's been a long, hard slog. I mean, a few years ago, I couldn't even organize my own thoughts to understand how I felt or how I thought. I've explained this before that getting in contact somatically. this is why I I recommend you know, the journaling um, government calls it uh, compassionate inquiry Uh, Jordan Peterson called it uh, self-inquiry Jung used his uh, black books and his red book, essentially the same way I use my Yi journals, and I, I keep a commonplace book uh, where you know for my notes for the different courses. Uh, unless it's a long-term course, I keep separate notes. But you know, if it's a one-day course, you know, make some notes, or you know, I, sometimes I'll take notes on on the books that I'm reading. And I mean, I've been proven right by that with recent studies that showed that uh, children learn better uh, handwriting, doing it on paper, on a desk, like the old analog fashion, which is why I love analog watches. Science has shown that they learn better. They retain more, as compared to doing it on a computer screen. Because right? as I told you, for years, I mean, I was able to learn how to read on paper. But it was an absolute impossibility for me to, to read on a computer. Right? I could read a few sentences. You know. Even when I learned how to use a computer, I learned from books and then applied it on the computer screen. Because for some weird reason, I could absorb the screenshots in a book and, and you know, apply them. But what I was unable to do was look at the screen and, you know, it was just a weird experience. And I thought it was strictly just my dyslexia, but now science is saying that, no, we do have this weird disconnect. And I mentioned it before that I've experienced it on high doses of, say, mushrooms or LSD. If you take a high enough dose, you actually, for some people, it's a near impossibility to even use a computer. Because right? if you take a high enough dose, that panel is nothing but a light panel. I mean, you, you, I can see through that panel, in a sense. It's not real enough to convince the psychedelic self. It's really quite funny. It, it strips away the barriers uh, of perception. And flooding us with so much information, it's impossible to fool us. I mean, I make the argument... That even today, computer-generated images struggle to convince us that they're real. Uh, and I argue it's even more obvious on psychedelics. If that doesn't prove that our perception of reality is limited by our everyday experience, or it is limited, therefore, you know, it depends on how you want to, structure that. I just mean that every day we don't perceive reality truly, wholly for what it truly is. As shown by psychedelics. Not that psychedelics show us reality. It's not that they... We've talked about this, the thin veil between consciousness. That's Aldous Huxley. A veil. So It's not that it's completely hidden. It's not a curtain. So it's it's something we're able to see. It just allows us to see more clearly. So it's access to something we had access to previously. We just don't tend to exercise that muscle. This is why I mentioned that this is what the somatic experience is, is is for mindfulness. By practicing uh, reading, practicing writing, thinking, journaling, um, expressing yourself, that allows us. To improve, obviously, you get better at it. But in so doing, it's that ideation, it's the individuation process, exploring, you know, what you're good at, what you're not good at, working on it, getting better, taking stock, um, whatever you want to call it. That's the the ins and outs of this process, right? So, not that different from. You know, the somatic. When we're able to rest in the self, the true self, I mean, that's it's not like this crazy, weird metaphysical idea. It's as simple as that. That, Like Jung has said, that so many of us are so utterly unconscious that we're not even perceiving reality as it truly is, so we're not bringing our free will to bear. And so that's why I argue all of this treatment. Be it Vedanta, uh, Yogacara, Madhyamaka, um, Buddhism, uh, Stoicism, I mean, you name it, almost any of these practices boil down to pretty much the same idea that it's just an attempt to treat, you can call it trauma if you want. I mean, I've mentioned this before, the early Greeks, the early uh, plays, tragedy was all an attempt to heal these soldiers' trauma. Buddhism itself, this acceptance, this mindfulness, this this management of life and its inherent struggle was simply a reaction to the fact that people were so lost. They just didn't know how to manage so much suffering, so much disappointment. And that brings us straight to our modern time with Carl Friston's free energy. Right? That's what somatic experiencing is. Right? Our greatest risk is not the surprise from our predictions of an outcome being wrong. The greatest risk is allowing that free energy to run wild. So free energy is the mind at rest, at play, at prediction. So the mind is this predictive matrix, this engine of probability. That's the free energy to Carl Friston when it's just sitting there trying to work out with our imagination and our memory and our cognition, work out what to expect, what the future may hold, what's the best course of action, obviously. Cause and effect. We can't know this for sure. This is why I say Buddhism boils down to uh, needing to be conscious and present and aware so that you can act without regret, right? So here we are, Carl Friston's free energy. So the risk is not having an outcome that you couldn't predict or was even, you know, contrary to what you predicted. That's not the worst. The worst is to allow this free energy, to run wild. This is anxiety, this is depression, this is uh, catastrophizing. If you allow the free energy to run wild, or even worse, if you weight some of these predictions uh, over others, right? if you think negative consequences are more likely than positive. Same can be said if you're so delusional that you think everything is positive and therefore right, negative uh, are unlikely. That's the greatest risk of this practice. So somatic experiencing is this exact uh, attempt. Jung, uh, Carl Jung, or uh, the Kyoto School of Philosophy, uh, connected to, to Nietzsche, uh, Nishitani, uh, this idea of presence. So the somatic experiencing is treating our trauma, bringing us back to the present, and preventing, you know us. Misperceiving and misallocating or right trauma informed adaptations preventing those things from uh, forming, right? Arguably, though, not all trauma informed adaptations could be negative, but I mean these in this term something that denatures you or distracts you or or holds you back, right? Because arguably, we probably wouldn't call it a trauma informed adaptation, we just call it experience, right? Lived. Experience or learned experience. Hmm. So I argue, the somatic experience is an attempt, as with Buddhism, right, to understand that the first step is to understand your physical experience. That's the first jhana, right? To understand that you know not to be overly distracted by the physical experience of life, because the next step involves the second jhana. Uh, Managing that volition, that thinking, that free energy that just runs wild in the mind. So those first two jhanas are an attempt at emotional regulation. So mindfulness is emotional regulation. Understanding your physical experience, understanding your your internal experience, but not allowing either to run too wild. This is the unity of the opposites, right? Right? Thought, feelings versus physical experience. Right? They share a lot, but they seem to be at odds with each other. So that's why I mention the somatic experiencing this morning, because I mentioned it to a friend, and I never really realized how it's, it's combining both the science... Of the somatic experiencing, so technically it was designed for those that are so incredibly traumatized that even stopping for a moment to think about their traumas causes them to have severe physical uh, reactions from their you know psychological state, these memories. But for the rest of us, we can take these same lessons that are being used to bring people more to present to reduce their actual suffering. We can use these same teachings, these same protocols to bring ourselves to present, to apply our perception, our, 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 our person, to the present, as we should. I mean, there's an argument to be made that trauma causes us to disassociate, disassociation causes further trauma, yada, yada, yada. So arguably, as I've said before, our job is not to treat trauma in, say, a, a vet after the fact, Our job should be to prevent the trauma by teaching, educating on the truth of trauma, the tragedy of trauma, the the universality, the guarantee of trauma. So I would argue this is the exact same idea. By teaching this somatic experiencing, this presence, this awareness, this mindfulness, we not only treat any previous trauma – We're preventing future trauma from occurring by being present, by being aware, by paying attention, by interacting, bringing ourselves to bear, this karma yoga, this action yoga, going and doing, being present. But more importantly, this solves this question of free will. Because most of the papers or many of the papers that we bandy about this idea of free will, does it exist, does it not it all boils down to this idea, do we apply our free will? Are we aware? Are we conscious of? And do we implement it? Do we, do we use it? Or are we so unconscious, so distracted, so biased, so delusional, so disassociated that we just allow life to happen to us rather than, than to live and experience it? So that is the shortcut to this mindfulness, this awareness. Because this mindfulness, this awareness, shortcuts all of these other issues. So the real root cause of our suffering, our modern malaise, as Jung explained about 100 years ago, it's not what we're suffering from. It's what we're missing. And as Carl Jung said in his Liber Novus, used to be a time... When we used to we used to uh how did he put it um, we used to challenge the spirit through the flesh, right the mortification of the flesh fast forward to today now we now we're uh we're torturing the spirit through the flesh i mean it's it's a reversal right i mean it, it's i don't think I mentioned this for me. I liken it to James Joyce's uh, Ulysses. Uh, James Joyce was influenced by Jung. Yeah, a few times in it he talks about psychoanalysis or psychoanalysis. Analysis. He mentions Jung and they talked about it. But more importantly, yeah, the influence of Nietzsche and Nietzsche, how he influenced Joyce and Jung. But we see in Jung, I mean uh, in Joyce, in Ulysses, he used... The uh, the obscure term metempsychosis, uh, which he explains is another word for reincarnation, right? But what I love about this is they play on this and they say metempsychosis. And if you look at metempsychosis very close, that's actually the dissolution of self, right? Consolidation and dissolution, in a sense. Right? So, the idea of reincarnation, truly, and Joyce would have understood this from the Upanishads because Jung understood it from the Upanishads and Nietzsche understood it from the Upanishads. This idea of the Atman, reincarnation, it's not teaching that you, yourself, the I, as Jung says, is going to transmute to this next existence. No, this selfless self is what transmutes. This universal self, nothing that you attach to in this life transmutes into the next. Right? Metempsychosis is reincarnation, but if you separate the words metempsychosis, psychosis is illness. Metempsychosis, as Molly pronounce it, Sounds like, you know, on a stake, or pyro, to burn away. But most importantly, this play on words, I think he really did mean this idea of prognosis. That we either attach to the self so much that we separate ourselves from the universal self. The true individuation process is lost to us because we harden, we, uh, we cordon off this construct of self from the world, from reality, thereby consolidating what we consider the self, but actually denaturing the true nature of self, which is this universal self. That's an obscure reference, I apologize, but this is what I'm talking about. The I love that we talk about here in the West. You can read Northrop Frye or Nietzsche or Young, who will all explain how desperately important the Bible is as a canon to our literature, to our understanding, to our meaning, or aphorisms, or metaphor, everything. But I think I've just shown that throughout our Western literature also flows a tremendous amount of uh, Indic philosophy, or Sanatana Dharma, I don't know, Bharatan philosophy, uh, the Upanishads or the Vedas, whatever you want to call them. I argue it's like the West Wash of history. Just in the last 10 years or so that I've been following, you know, the online philosophy world, I've seen uh, Pyrrhanism go from completely uh, developed on his own, had nothing to do with the Indians, even though he went to India on campaign, to now, no, it's wholly accepted that, no, this definitely is something likely influenced by the Indians and probably something that he actually even took from India. In fact, uh, this weekend, my course on uh, the Mahadevi, uh, the goddess, um... And how much is lost to our understanding of the goddess aspect, right? This discussion of our father who art in heaven could just as easily be our mother, right? Who art in heaven, Heaven, this idea of Shakti, right? Our mother who art everything and permeates everything. I mean, it's, it's interesting how we tend to obscure this stuff and attempt uh, to make it less sufficient. I mean, the same thing can be said about the somatic experiencing. So often, I hear people talking about it, and they go into such great detail as to the science or the practice, just even the rings. So how they would explain it is, you wear your rings, and you got to keep bringing yourself to it, and you can fiddle with it like a fidget spinner, kind of like dream yoga. They get so concentrated on the physical somatic experience that they've actually done the opposite of what they intended to do. So instead of grounding themselves to be more present and finding that balance between uh, thoughts and experience, uh, somatic and vedanta the, the mind and body, what they've done is they've gone from, obviously I'm thinking they might have been disassociated, this is why they took up the somatic experiencing, they've gone from being disassociated to being fixated, Obsessed, right? So there's this balance that needs to be had. And so often these teachers, and I think part of it is maybe trying too hard. Part of it is trying to be different, right? I'm the therapist with the answers for you. But part of it can be they just don't have the faith that's required for many of these practices because truly the healing is nothing external. None of these practices which we talk about is going to heal you. That's why I mentioned five minutes of meditation only works if you're devoted and you're really present and you're really doing it. Five minutes of sitting for that to end is not going to give you the benefits. I mentioned this before. I actually mentioned it in my review of Dr. Gaber Maté's new book, The Myth of Normal. The only thing I would criticize this man for is he never has taken the advice to heart. This gentleman says that uh, 10 days of silent meditation didn't work for him. It's just he's not that type of person. He says he needs, you know, regular meditation, uh, the odd psychedelic experience, and yada, yada, yada. But he told the story that he actually had to be separated from his, his, um, his group when they went down to Peru for a psychedelic experience. He was supposed to be their therapist during the day. But the shaman said he was so toxic because, and I'll explain why, so toxic because of how he approaches this experience that they didn't want him around the other patients because they felt that he would impinge on their healing. So he never really did learn the experience because, in the end, the story he tells was how, what it was like... uh, for someone to watch him experience. right? He, he, in the end, he doesn't explain how he came to an understanding, he came to a light. and No, he, he ends up saying that he realized he needed to buy in. He was keeping a wall up. This is what the shamans told him. He realized he needed to buy into this protocol, this actual healing. But he, he couldn't. He didn't because he tells the story that he was lying there on the ground. and supposed he was on the ground for whatever amount of time. He never had the actual experience himself. Because I argue if he buy in to whatever practice you're going to do, I argue he talks about being involved in a sweat lodge or any of these experiences. You can do it with fasting as well. But it's in the Bible, actually, if you read... Jeez, um, which is it? Philippians? I think it might be Philippians 2. Uh, oh, wait a minute. No, I apologize. No, actually, I'm actually thinking of the Gospel of Thomas. In the Gospel of Thomas, you can read where they ask um, Jesus if, if they should fast and if they should um, give alms. And, and Jesus says, no, not if you're not going to be devoted. That's worse than doing nothing. Right? because you're denaturing yourself. That's what we see so often. That, That's what uh, Churyi, the uh, patriarch of Tiantai, and I argue of Zen, Bodhidharma, they both realized that they'd allowed their practice to become their disassociation. The modern yoga is no different. I mean, I've known about yoga for decades. I've tried to explain this to uh, yoga practitioners over and over again. Not all of them listen. Some of them do. But yoga is not the movement. The movement was just men also ran. Yoga, yoga, is an attempt to tie oneself to the divine. So it's a meditation, if anything, a moving meditation. But meditation first, moving second. But in the West, it's become so denatured that It's seen strictly as a physical movement, right? So that's what I'm getting at here. You can't get too attached to the somatic experience because the problem isn't the disassociation from your physical being, your presence. It's not disassociation from your thoughts because you can't do that. I mean, you're not going to give up. In fact, that's what uh, Professor Timbalcina said this weekend. There is no no no-self. There is no being free from thought. We're inherently trapped in the truth that we can't be without thought, right? That's a guarantee. So the idea is to find a balance, right? Not too much of this, too little of that. That's the Chinese uh, golden mean, central path. Not excessive, not insufficient. But the same idea of, in the West, the gestalt. Right? It's not just mind. It's not just body, but it's the the balance of the both, right? The unity of the opposites to Jung. It's arguably no different from one culture to another, one tradition to another. And I love that because even uh, the professor mentioned that again this weekend when he mentioned about the devotion. This is why they teach bhakti so much, this devotion. Because That's the heart of faith, right? It's commitment, it's devotion, and it's confidence in the path you follow. And we can see that in the West when they won't even put in the commitment to read the second or the third definition of a word and they make great leaps of judgment, which is trauma, right? You've allowed your perception, your bias to jade reality. So, I don't know. It was supposed to be short. I apologize. Um, Just wanted to share a little bit of my somatic experiencing uh, practice. Um, But obviously, I, uh, I went a little bit on a tangent there. Just talking about how important somatic experiencing is. And what we've watched is we watched how important it was to be in the present and, and be mindful of your physical experience, essentially what yoga was trying to do, help yoke the mind to both the physical experience, uh, allowing you to explore the, the psychological experience, if you will. But fast forward, we've gone from, oh no, no, don't fixate too much on the physical, and then it was all about the mind and in the mental, right? And once again, are we going full circle back to the somatic, the physical? Or are we going to come to the truth of this gestalt, this middle way, Madhyamaka path? That we have to find a balance between the physical and the mental, psychological, whatever you want to call it. The feelings and the physical. It's a balance between the two. right? I mean... um. I remember early on when uh, some of these amateurs were trying to implement cognitive-based therapy, and they would literally tell the patient that being mindful and challenging your awareness would solve your problems, as if the physical experience would go away. Never mind the fact that the uh, traumatized, it will actually make it worse. It would make it worse to challenge your anxieties certainly because cognitive-based therapy at the time didn't provide any insight into impermanence or anything like that. So in the moment, as a traumatized individual, all you can see is a lifetime of suffering. And so this therapist is literally making you suffer, making things work. And so all they've gone and done, in my opinion, is turned away thousands of needy patients, making them worse even, and and giving them a trauma that they don't want to go back to medicine. I mean, I've been, and I'm pretty advanced on this uh, journey, but even I am traumatized by our healthcare system, right? It's gotten so bad that I won't even go see a, a doctor. I hurt my foot. Um, but I don't trust them uh, to be able to do surgery at this point, certainly not here, up here in Canada, right? Um, and that I know is a little bit because, yeah, our system is all messed up, but it's trauma. Because I've been gaslit so many times, I've been lied to so many times, it's because they're so rushed, they don't have time, and it's just been a nightmare. They don't have answers for my particular disease, so rather than being honest, uh, they're more afraid of someone, you know, losing hope. But they don't understand what Frankel explained that, Losing hope just means you have to find your hope, your meaning. But if you keep giving false hope to a patient, to another human being, to anything, that is going to destroy them. And in turn, they're going to turn around and destroy you. That's just human nature. Right? So that's another takeaway of Gaber Maté's book. He talks about how anger is just eating away at so many people. But as Nietzsche said, the problem with Buddhism is there isn't enough people who can set aside that sort of anger and understand where a lot of this problem comes from, that a lot of these people are suffering so much inside that they're not malevolent, they're not evil people. Arguably, there is no absolute evil in the universe. It's all about a balance of the opposites. Every good has its evil side. To me, I guess uh, I don't know. I guess my biggest takeaway is um, we don't realize uh, that there is a possibility for openness. That's what I was trying to get at. This idea Nietzsche criticized Buddhism because he said there wasn't enough people that were willing to live for others. He's right. There aren't. There aren't enough. But that's the beauty of the human creature. It, it it wouldn't take ten in twenty people being selfless to convince the majority. Science has proved it only takes three or three and a half people in a hundred to convince the majority to be better. So we just have to believe. That's commitment and it's confidence, and that's stepping away from the apathy that Nietzsche warned us about about 100 and, almost 150 years ago now. He said if, if you let the anger eat you alive, you're too busy to think about anything that matters. But if you don't let the anger eat you alive, but you allow the hopelessness of this situation we're in, to, to eat you alive, we'll get nowhere. This is where Carl Jung's Happy Fiction comes in. And this is why I have trouble with it because I'm among the six souls that uh, William James told us about. I mean, I, I, I'm not someone who can just come to God or uh, witness synchronicity or a miracle and just have a change of heart. Carl Jung's happy fiction is what we're meant to embrace, right? Find your meaning, find your value, right? Highlight the positive, right? Ignore the the majority that is uh, negative. That doesn't work for me because um, I know that uh, Carl Jung's happy fiction is fiction, right? For me. So I'm more of an absurdist in the sense Right. Camus' uh, philosophy speaks to me, and which is why I still love Buddhism, because within Buddhism, certainly uh, the Yogacara, I mean, I guess the, there's a, a controversy in Yogacara Madhyamaka, this idea of, uh, does conventional reality exist, or is it, is it um, an illusion? See, I love the final stance on this. It's, well, yes and no. I mean, whatever works for you, bud, that's the answer for, for uh, a certain segment of that, right? So yes, reality is essentially illusion, right? We're, we're playing term here because you only perceive existence, reality, uh, conventional objects, whatever you want to call it. You perceive it through your eyes, through your ears, through your nose, all this stuff secondhand. So you're not experiencing it firsthand. Then you obfuscate it further by being biased, by being distracted, by trying to see what you want to see. So argument is all life is an illusion, whether it truly is an illusion or our perception of it is so off that it is an illusion. It's a mind construct of the first degree, right? Because... Our eyes tell us something. Our ears tell us something. We put it together based on experience, imagination, cognition. We're not experiencing it firsthand. So when you add that extra layer of obfuscation with the fact that mm, no, you know, you're not perceiving reality as it is. You're perceiving it how you'd like it to be, or you're reacting to it, or or so many different things that come into play. So I love the radical empiricist pragmatic approach to conventional reality. So the answer is, yes, reality is real. We interact with it. So we have to accept it as such. But it is also illusion, maya. And we have to accept that as well. So it's the chetiskoti. This is what I love about um Madhimaka, um, um Chittamatra, Yogacara, my my Buddhist um middle way approach. Because the Chattiskoti says that it can be all of the above and none, all at the exact same time. So it can be real, it can be an illusion, it can be both, it can be neither. Because how how arrogant are we to think that we are we are able to see the nature of reality for ourselves, right? I've mentioned this before. We are trapped in the system. How ridiculous is it for us to believe we could understand the system from within the system, right? Imagine being a piece in in a car's engine. How difficult would it be for you to perceive the car as a whole, right? Because remove the part from the vehicle and you've changed both. I mean who was it that said um, was it Spinoza or Schopenhauer it said you never step in the same same river. No two men step in the same river. Right? So that's that next or next, next layer of obfuscation. Right? If you can't know what the system is when you're trapped within it well worse yet if you take yourself out of the system. I mean, this is this idea of philosophical suicide to Camus. He didn't actually mean commit suicide. He just meant, if you're not present and, and accepting what truly is and interacting what truly is, interacting with what truly is, are you really living or have you committed psychological suicide? Because you're not... You're not um, expressing your will. You're not expressing who you truly are, your, your person. I don't know. I could ramble on and on. This was supposed to be a short and it just wasn't. Um, but I just thought I would share um, my somatic experience practice, right? The rings on both hands or uh, something on either wrist, uh, the mala that I used to wear around my neck. But actually having discussed this, this is what I used to do. This podcast was originally an attempt for me to be able to think about these things, right? Because I could only really think out loud. I couldn't write uh, and, and, you know, really get these ideas out. So I spoke and it was in talking about it. It's a very uh, Tibetan geshe sort of thing, right? Arguing back and forth. But I did it with myself. And while I was talking about what my actual somatic uh, experiencing practice is, I, I came in this podcast to come to realize that so many of these practitioners are treating one side or the other. Right? They're treating the somatic experience or they're treating the mental. But they're forgetting, this is why I mentioned, that you can't separate calm and insight practice in meditation, the shamatha and the vipassana, It's two sides of one coin, right? They're the the two wings of the bird, right? Because you need to balance both of them, right? Because calm, as I said, isn't going to give you much, right? Introspecting alone can make the trauma worse. The two combined, when properly uh, balanced, that's what gets us to this intended goal, but on that. I'll leave it. So I just wanted to share that it seems to me the problem is not so much that we don't have practices to help with these. It's that we we don't have enough practitioners that have actually used these protocols, currently using these protocols. So arguably we don't have enough gurus that are honest with how challenging they find their everyday practice, how challenging everyday life is. It, It explains to us why so many of these monks like to cloister themselves away from the real world, because, as we learned, one of the hardest things to do is to risk your achievement uh, by interacting with everyday life right so easy to go back to your old your old habits, your old ways, certainly when the majority is well the majority is the opposite to the way. Uh, you want to think or feel or act, right? You're meant to to feel ostracized. But on that note, I hope you all are having a fabulous day. I just wanted to share. I guess it just goes a little further along this idea that um, emotional regulation, mindfulness, um, you name the concentration practice. It's all an attempt for us uh, to manage our experience, both previous uh, traumatic experience, present uh, traumatic experience, and and hopefully uh, learn to prevent uh, future occurrences. And, And that's how we treat intergenerational trauma, right? Because what's worse for a child than uh, the experience uh, experiencing a trauma, but but to experience a trauma and and have those around you um, exemplifying what it's like to to not do this properly, not heal properly, not manage these things properly. But so on that. Hope you have a fabulous weekend. Hope you had a fabulous weekend. My apologies. It's a Monday. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for hanging out.